Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of iRelaunch, and your host. It's hard to believe, but we launched this podcast five years ago, and this is our 200th podcast episode. We're so glad you can join us for this milestone moment and want to thank you for being a listener. We look forward to bringing you many more episodes and hope you find the information as helpful and inspirational as we do. Today, we welcome Michael Matowitz, economist for the Center for American Progress, whose work has focused on labor markets, financial markets, tax policy, household budgeting in different phases of life, and a variety of environmental economics topics. Most relevant for relaunchers and relaunchers-to-be, He is the creator of the CAP Calculator, which enables people to estimate the cost of their career break. Michael was recently featured in Newsweek using the CAP Calculator to estimate lost income to a woman who left the workforce during COVID, and we're going to talk about that today. We were fortunate to have Michael join us previously in episode 60, in which he spoke in more detail about the CAP Calculator. So for those of you interested in those details, please listen to that episode. Today, we're going to be speaking with Michael about the numbers behind the lost jobs and lost income that have resulted from the pandemic, how this may impact relaunchers going forward, and what he's seeing in the economic recovery. Michael, welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Thanks for having me back. Well, we're thrilled to have you back, and you're working on such pertinent and relevant uh, economic analysis uh, for what's going on in our world today. So really a a privilege for us. I want to start by going through some definitions and defining for uh, our listeners the difference between some of these these numbers we hear out there. So for example, um, we're hearing about people being unemployed during the pandemic, and we're hearing about people withdrawing from the labor force during the pandemic. And we'll talk later about the numbers uh, of people who were impacted during the pandemic, but just the definition itself. Can you talk to us a little bit about unemployed versus leaving the labor force? Yeah. I mean, I love talking about definitions of statistics probably a lot more than I should. Um, But I think this is actually this has become less nerdy and actually relevant in the last roughly year or so. So the the sort of very straightforward version of this is you are in the labor force if you are working or if you are currently looking for work, which we define statistically in the U.S. as having looked for jobs within the last two weeks. So you would be withdrawn from the labor force if you have not looked for a job within the last two weeks, Uh, whether that's because you're in school, taking care of a child, um, you know, maybe your job ended and you are taking a few minutes to compose yourself before you look more strategically, all of that qualifies as being out of the workforce. Um, And, you know, I think historically we tend to think of these as not having colossal flows between them, right? So we expect people to flow between employment and unemployment because, a job might go away and and sort of the reason people have historically talked about the unemployment rate is 
the sort of intuition is, well, you were working, you're still in the labor force, you're looking for a job, you're sort of the most likely people to be finding jobs. And I think that that sort of evolves from, you know, probably back to the 60s when we were first thinking about this pretty seriously. Uh, I think that's, you know, I know, especially over the last couple of years of recovery, and certainly over the, the last year or so, that's been very untrue, right? Like we know lots of people have been flowing from out of the labor force into jobs. So it's, um, you know, withdrawn from the labor force, it, uh, I feel like it speaks less about what the hiring pool looks like than it does about what people are actually doing when they're out of work, if that makes sense. All right. So yeah, let's look at some actual numbers though. And then um, maybe that'll illustrate it even more because part of what I'm trying to understand is is there overlap between these two populations? So let, let's just go to some of the numbers that we've seen in terms of what happened at the peak of the recession of the pandemic. And, and we'll talk about the um, nuances and the, um, the what happened during this recession versus uh, uh, past recessions. But I heard that there was a, a number like 10 million people lost jobs. 10 million people lost jobs during the pandemic. And it was broken down, I think, a little over 5 million women, a little over 4 million men. Uh, so I heard that number. But then I also heard this number that about 3.6 million people left the labor force. And that was about uh, almost evenly divided between 1.8 million women and 1.8 million men. So the first question I have is, is there overlap between those two numbers? Yeah, I mean, like, so very much so. I mean, in, in normal times, there are overlap. I think the, the overlap now is maybe a little more complicated, but a little more important. And I think it's also um, usually parsing these numbers out month to month is a, an exercise in, in insignificance because what looks like a big deal one month isn't a big deal the next month. But, you know, I think talking about any of these, you know, when we're talking about, if I look at the employment level for women, so the number of women who have a job, that number fell by 13.4 million in the first two months of the recession. And then it rebounded by more than half in the, in the next three months. And then it's been sort of gradually inching back now. So the, the number of employed women is now about 3.3 million below where it was. Uh, what happens to those women when they're not employed is they are either going to be classified as unemployed or not in the labor force. And mm -hmm. when we go and look at the, the labor force numbers, we see that like a very large fraction of people have gone from, you know, not the traditional, oh, I, I had a job and I lost it and now I'm looking for another job, which, you know, as, as many of us are aware, that's not really how life always works if you're dealing with a bunch of competing demands and especially not how it's worked in the last year. Uh, and so, you know, you could, you would, you would expect a lot of people to be going, or a lot more people than usual to be going from not just employed to unemployed, but to employed and out of the labor force. Now, one other important distinction here is, uh, I think the strict definition of employed is worked for pay or profit in the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I feel like a lot of us are doing a lot of work that is not for pay or profit right now. Um, mm -hmm. it's mostly keeping our households above water and, uh, that work doesn't show up in these numbers. And so, you know, you can imagine there's a great deal of, of labor that's not showing up in, 
you know, not only in employment, but even in the labor force in these numbers, uh, particularly over the last year or so. Yeah, well, that gets into the whole question about uh, for people who are are uh, supporting households and keeping them going, like, is there a um, compensation that's attached to that? And then would it, you know, ultimately uh, be somehow uh, c- considered officially uh, as employment? But we're not going to go there right now. It's all, that's, a, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but there are a few things that were going through my mind when you were talking. Um, one of them is, this idea that you know it's this is done these these surveys are done in two week in increments that you know are it takes a long time to find a job sometimes it can take six months a year three years so you know the idea that people are sort of moving in and out of the workforce um in more in some frequency I guess maybe this is obvious. It's not the same people. It's like a net group of people moving in and out because it could be someone is, you know, many of our relaunchers who are listening might think, well, you know, I've been looking for like a year. So, yeah, I I mean, I think like the, the, um, so there, there is some data on people who have been classified as unemployed for um, a certain number of weeks that, 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 they report out on this, and that has a lot more to do with how our unemployment insurance system works than anything else. Uh, but I think you're totally right in terms of like, we're doing this survey once a month. It's like a snapshot in time, and it's saying, ah, uh, this many people seem to be employed, this many people are not employed but looking for work, and this many people are not employed and not actively looking for work. And I think there are even some questions that uh, they've added over the last year about are you not employed or not looking for work or scaling back your hours or a bunch of other things because of various COVID things? Mm-hmm. But but beneath all those snapshots are, you know, the way the surveys are done is we're repeatedly interviewing people over, I believe it's four months in, then four months out, then four months in again. And if you get into the sort of underlying data of all this, people are sort of cycling in and out of jobs like much more quickly than it appears, especially in this recovery right now. So this kind of, uh, one of the questions people have been asking a lot over the last, I'd say eh, two or three months is like, so we keep seeing these really, really high numbers of people applying for unemployment benefits. And that doesn't make sense because like we've been adding all these jobs. And when you go into the numbers a little more, it's it's a lot of people seem to be getting jobs for a few weeks and then things don't seem to be working out. And, mm. you know, we, we kind of expect, we call these frictions uh, because we like to have a name for everything in economics. But like, you know, normally you'd expect like not every job is going to work out for everybody. Um, I believe I I have had a few of these in my like teen years where it was like, oh yeah, it turns out I'm, I'm not going to sell cars particularly well for the rest of my life. So uh, that was a great two day experience or whatever. But if for those two days I was surveyed that I would be counted as employed. And so we, we do seem to be seeing a lot of people who are trying jobs and they're not working out. And I feel like that's a lot less of the like, this isn't my life calling than like, I can't possibly make this work right now. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, cause as, as you might guess, the people who are getting newly hired into jobs are not getting newly hired into jobs with like the best of the benefits in terms of accommodating unusual schooling situations and, and things like that. Right, and we're gonna get into that in a minute, but um, one more um, detail related to the definitions. So if someone has withdrawn from the workforce, because we're hearing a lot of discussion about how people uh, managing Zoom school and daycares and everything is shut down, um, just 
can't make it work by supporting their full-time jobs, uh, committing themselves to those at the same time. So um, our, when we say people remove themselves from the labor force, are most of them doing that as an intentional choice, like they elected to do it, or are some of them laid off and then they count in that group too if they don't immediately go looking for another job? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix of both. I think what we're seeing right now is still, um, I guess like, want to say right now, I guess now that we are in June of 2021, as we're taping this, I think we're seeing um, people who are sort of going from employed to unemployed more often. But a lot of people who are going from, or a lot of people who are getting hired are coming out of the the withdrawn from the labor force. So, you know, it's much less of a strict title than you might think it would be. But it's also, um, so typically it would mean people who are you know, not actively looking, but it turns out you can sort of do a lot of kind of casual looking while you're doing Zoom school. And I think, you know, there's probably some aspect of people not necessarily reporting that like, you know, whether or not they could start a job in a week or two, um, they're still at least looking at what's going on. I think, you know, what mm-hmm. what a lot of us are doing right now is kind of like some hybrid of, of withdrawn from the labor force and unemployed, or even in some cases, you know, I think one of the things that, that gets missed in a lot of these debates where we're, I think we're all very focused on the fact that we're something like seven or eight million jobs short of where we were a year ago, or I guess not a year ago, more than a year ago, but before the recession. And so I think the the total number of jobs is, is kind of like the headline thing. But uh, I think a lot of people are probably also doing the thing where they have had to throttle back at work, which is a good point to be thinking about relaunching, right? Is, is if you have been you know, trying to make the 20 million other things that that we all kind of have to do anyway, and that the sort of webs of care support that we may have built over the last couple of years, um, now that those kind of disappeared. I think a lot of people who are still counting as even employed are, are not as at work as they would be, both in terms of the number of hours and in terms of their, like, their total focus. And so when we're looking at, you know, numbers that say, well, these are the people that are out of the workforce. That's probably underestimating, you know, the extent to which people are kind of uh, in need of, of doing like a more serious relaunch at some point in the next, you know, year or two to kind of get through all of this. Okay, and that really leads me to my next question because I'm speculating that people who elected to leave the workforce during COVID because there was just too much going on and they had to um, manage a lot more at home when support systems like daycare centers and and schools shut down or went virtual, that they're not going to come back as fast as everyone is predicting. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is when we speak even pre-COVID, typically when we would talk to relaunchers, and you know, we have over 90,000 relaunchers in our community, um, people will invariably say, you know, I only thought I was going to be out for a year or two. And the next thing I knew, five years had gone by. Because once you're out, when things happen, and that could be like maybe things kind of get steady, uh, steadied on the childcare side, and then all of a sudden you have an elder care situation and you're the one who's already home, then you're the one who tends to then get saddled with that responsibility. So I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about um how long you think these career breaks might be for people who leave for family reasons um, and whether you think that, fall, you know, mental health fallout or other issues, you know, related to COVID are going to impact the, the 
amount of time they stay out of the workforce. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I, I think that's one of those ones where we actually have a little bit of data on this that we wouldn't because we have this this other survey that the Census Bureau has been doing for, I think, since about March or April of last year. It's called the Household Pulse Survey. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're really excited, you can Google this. Uh, but it's like this really... It's this really cool thing, which I have even been a part of, which makes it even cooler. But mm-hmm. you basically, you know, if you're part of it, you get a text message that's like, hi, this is the Census Bureau. And we're really curious about like all these things. And I don't know if if you're an economist, you're like, you respond to that text in a heartbeat. Um, I don't know if everybody does that. But among the among things they've asked are, are sort of like a lot of things that are very COVID specific, like, are you teleworking? Are your kids in remote school? Are you getting unemployment insurance? Are you getting um, enough to eat because of the various food benefits they've added on? And they've also added some some mental health measures, and and I've done some some work with a co-author on some of that that suggests that uh, you know kind of a lot of these sort of stimulus checks have seem to have had like really significant mental health benefits. Um, so we can say more than we normally would about that, but I, I think the sort of the pull back for a second and, and nerd out less on the survey point is that, yeah, like I think withdrawn from labor force is, as any anyone who's who's used to this can probably tell you is, is probably not a great description of where people are coming from when they're kind of trying to figure out how to get back in. And my hope is that like, because this year has involved so much more coordination and, and kind of, um, I don't like the bootstrap terminology, but like I, you know, sometimes we use bootstrapping in statistical terms because the only thing you can do is to bootstrap up from what what you've got available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's there's been a lot of that this year. So I'm I'm somewhat optimistic that that there may actually be more margin for for and I mean how great this turns out to be, right? There may be more margin for people to recover, which there should be because there are so many more people who are out right now. But I mean, you know, we we, I, all of us have been juggling various things and figuring out like how to make, you know, how to, how to sort of craft something that'll hold up for another few months or whatever. I, I, I do think there's like a big, you know, once, once you become the default in your household, it's very hard to push back. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to keep a long-term perspective for that reason, right? Is to say like, look, you know, we're like, we are, we just went through this crazy recession where like all the people that no one thought were going to get laid off, like lots of them got laid off. Um, and so I think, you know, having a, a sort of long-term plan of like, no, it's, it's really useful for our household stability to be uh, not having all of our income come from one source and to take some of that volatility yeah. out is, is like, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's like important for households in general, but I think it's probably even more important for households to be thinking about that now going forward in terms of, you know, if you're if you're running your household like a company, which I think many of us have, have kind of been forced into in the last year, um, you know, thinking about like the long term plan is is really important. And so, you know, if if you are doing a bunch of care work right now, but you can see that hopefully in September you will be doing less to be able to say that, OK, so by September, it's really important that we diversify the work that we're planning on on me doing so that it involves a lot more like work for pay and profit in the the Bureau of Labor Statistics terminology, um, and and less of the kind of uh, sort of conditional like I will be the backstop work is is I think really important for for getting you know not just people but households like on the right financial footing going forward. 
Yeah, you know what you're saying. We we heard this during the last recession too. Um, even though it was very different from from this one, the 2008 recession, where relaunchers were reporting that they were being propelled back into the workforce sooner than anticipated because they they if they if they had a spouse or partner and that spouse or partner's employment situation was suddenly unstable in some way or maybe they lost their job. They are saying exactly what you are saying. We're not going to be dependent on one employer anymore. So we both need to be looking for jobs and, and working and be less vulnerable um, in that way. So interesting that that's maybe maybe that's fundamental to coming out of recessions in general, even though this recession is different. Yeah, I mean, I think like households are weird like this, right? It's it's always like a mix of like, you know, there's there's the life that you would want in a perfect world with infinite dollars, which is like, you know, I would probably spend like three hours a day doing really interesting economics and like a lot of time hanging out with my kids and, you know, maybe I would develop some woodworking hobby or something. And then there's like the thing you have to do when you have like mortgages and kids to feed and stuff and like households have to do all of those things. So, I mean, I think, I think one thing that's you know, there's a certain pragmatism about it, but I think one of the the obvious things that you get to once you have, I mean, I think particularly for, you know, when you have a when you have parents who both have a fair amount invested in their education and their careers, you know, once you've got all that invested, it it makes a lot of sense to make sure that you're keeping both of those both of those careers in play, especially from like a risk sharing point of view. Mm-hmm. And actually, that is a perfect time to ask this question about. The cap calculator, we've already talked about it in detail in in our earlier episode, but your work was recently highlighted um, in this Newsweek article where they asked you to use the calculator to estimate the lost income of a woman who left during COVID because daycare and schools closed, including compounding and savings assumptions, social security, and everything that's built into your cap calculator. So can you talk about, did you make any tweaks to the cap calculator because of anything that happened during COVID? And can you give us a brief synopsis of what you reported back to Newsweek uh, when you did this work? Yeah. So I, I guess we, you know, in terms of the, the underlying code, I don't think we did do anything major to it. Um, so the whole thing is built out of um, about a 40-year study of people who were between 14 and 16, and I believe it's 1979, and it's sort of followed that cohort for a really long time. And so we've been able to see what wage growth looks like for them, uh, what their career progressions looked like. And you know we kind of use all that data to build the thing in the first place. And so... I, I looked into updating that, and it turns out that you know most people's career progressions have have stayed more or less the same since then. So, hmm. I think I think the only major difference is uh, when you're building a tool that goes on the internet that's trying to get people to sort of engage with the topic who might not be um, super excited about it. You make some assumptions to make the problem easier. So one of the things we made one of the assumptions we made to make our problem easier was uh, we assumed everybody would retire everybody would be retired for 15 years. And, you know, the the correct version of this from a, a really wonky point of view is to say, well, how, how many years do you expect to be retired? Uh, which basically means you're asking people like, would you expect to retire and would you expect to die? And, you know, if you're trying to get people to engage with something they might be a little intimidated with in the first place, the question of like, would you expect to die is not like first on your list. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So we we just kind of de facto assumed everybody was going to live on 15 years of retirement income. And we, in talking to the people who were, who were doing this on the Newsweek side, they were they thought a 15-year retirement was probably a bit pessimistic, which I think is, is probably fair. So we did like a 20-year a 20 retirement period. I think that's the only, the only like major change. And then we did like a few updates to look at sort of who's been getting laid off in this recession and, and kind of, you know, what the composition of, you know, they asked us to come up with a composite number. So we did that by sort of saying, well, we think this many people got laid off who are in this age group and this age group and and sort of what the, the sort of wage structure for those jobs looked like. Um, so it was like, it was an interesting exercise, but I, I don't think it was like a particularly uh, huge departure from, from what you could just go in and, and kind of try yourself. So Michael, can you talk to us specifically about, I know they, they had a hypothetical woman who, who left during COVID. Uh, and can you tell us what the calculator showed in terms of her lost uh, income and all the things that are, are part of that and what assumption you made in terms of how long she was going to be out of the work. Yeah. So they actually had us run a few of these because, uh, you know, we went back and forth on this a little, and I think the correct answer was like, nobody knows exactly how long the average person is going to be out of work for this. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we, we got the sort of, the scenarios we looked at were, you know, kind of just using the median salary for a 30 year old woman, uh, the median salary for a 30 year old college educated woman and, you know, a high earner salary. And, you know, these were all kind of assuming there would be some, some employee contributions to an IRA, but we did it without an employer match to be conservative. So these may be a little bit understating, but the kind of, the, the sort of short version is, the median salary for a thirty-year-old a thirty-year-old female is about forty-seven thousand dollars, and so lifetime losses if you're out for one year making forty-seven thousand dollars are about one hundred thirty-six thousand. Uh, if you're out two years, it it rises to two hundred sixty-three thousand, and if you're out up to five years, which I guess is a scenario that McKinsey is is really quite worried about, then you'd be looking at a six hundred thousand dollar loss, assuming you were making forty-seven thousand dollars. Um, those numbers go up mm-hmm. a lot as salaries go up. So for a college educated woman, uh, making the median salary at 30 years old, you would lose $178,000 just missing one year of work and $345,000 missing two years of work. Um, and then the higher earner numbers are, are just kind of scary to me. Um, uh-huh. you're, one year costs you $273,000, two years costs you $529,000, and five years would cost you $1.2 million. And, you know, this is, this is the higher earner salary, right? Like they're, by definition, uh, lots of people who are 30 years old are not making $100,000, but people are also making more than that. So, that, sorry, those numbers are based on $100,000, the 275, 530, and 1.2 million. Um, yeah, so let's just um, drill down on that for a minute for our listeners. So when you're saying, um, you know, the salary is one amount, but the total losses for that year um, are a much bigger number. That's because you're making assumptions in terms of you make that money and some of it gets saved and and you get Social Security and there are other pieces. And then you take yeah. in, you know, finance parlance, a net present value of all those future income streams. And that gives you that that number of what it's yeah. worth today. Yeah. And I think, 
Although the numbers are gratuitous, maybe we'll talk about the $100,000 salary because none of us are great at division, even the economists mm -hmm. among us. So like, I think sure. like the most straightforward way to talk about this is if you are looking at the one-year version of that. So you're making $100,000, you take a year off. Our calculator says it's going to cost you $273,000 in lifetime income. So the first 100,000 is the easiest to figure out. It's the $100,000 you don't make in the year that you're not working. Uh, and then I think like the, the next most obvious thing that I think especially your, your audience is gonna be familiar with is, well, you were making retirement contributions. We're talking about retirement contributions when you're 30 years old. So there was a lot of compound growth in there. And so missing those costs you a lot. It's something on the order of 75,000 for that. Um, but I think the one that, that we kind of did that I think people are not used to thinking about is uh, there tends to be slower wage growth for people who've had a year out of the workforce or a year or more. Uh, and we show that the difference between the wage growth you'd have without a career break and the wage growth you have with a career break accounts for, you know, about a third of the, the $273,000 total. So it is this kind of like slower growth trajectory. And, you know, honestly, if I'm saying, if there's one thing in this particular article that I'm hoping is wrong, it's it's definitely the uh, the wage growth penalty, because you know if you think about it, typically that tends to reflect some kind of statistical discrimination or something where people who take time off are kind of penalized with fewer opportunities. And you know, if ever there were a time where an employer could benefit from from recognizing that there were extraordinary circumstances this year and that people who'd had a year off were in fact highly productive and worth compensating it at the levels they probably should be, this kind of seems like the test case for it. And, and I'm, I'm really hoping that number turns out to be too pessimistic. Yeah, you know, you're hitting on the central mission of our company, I realized, because we are, our company's mission has always been based on this idea that when people leave the workforce, they're leaving for reasons that have nothing to do with their work performance. And they don't lose their abilities to do great work simply because they take a career break. So we're really trying to change that that whole picture. Um, and we're seeing more and more company return to work programs, formal programs to trans give transitional support to bring people back as they're relaunching. So hopefully uh, that's moving in the right direction and that will also uh, have an impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually the, you know, one of the silver linings of this year is I feel like they're, I think everyone who's taken a career break kind of knows what it entails and that it is not, uh, you know, that the term break is probably a bit misleading. Right. Um, but I think, you know, whereas, you know, if you talk to the median person in Silicon Valley, like circa 2019, you know, they heard, I took, like, when they talked about career breaks in their 30s, it was like, yeah, I'm going to build a really cool van and go see the world and, and you know, find myself or whatever. And I think as of this year, I think very, very few people understand that's what a career break meant in 2020. I think a career break in 2020 was, was significantly harder than a lot of careers. Um, and I think, you know, the one plus side of having this happen to 20 million people at the same time is, you know, there's not this like, oh, so tell me about this like hole in your resume that happened in 2020. I think, you know, if there's a hole in a resume in 2020, most of us know what was going on there. So I'm, I'm optimistic that people will, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that you guys have done that is really, really innovative and really smart is like, you know, we, we talk all the time about like how you put a credential to a skill that people are 
are picking up where the credential can be easily communicated to someone who's not super familiar and therefore you can create a lot of value by by sort of signaling to to employers like this is what this means and i think the the relaunch platform does that really well because it's like when we say career break we mean this happened and we were doing these things which were not you know martiniville um you know they were they were lots of other work lots of other executive responsibilities and you know now that there's bandwidth to move back to a a sort of traditional job focus, like we still have all of those skills, and and this is sort of like a way to demonstrate that. Uh, I don't, I I don't hope this year puts you guys out of business, but I kind of hope this year like provides another way for people to communicate. Yeah. Like that that is one of the things that happens when uh, lots of things fall apart. Is is you can have a great deal of work being done and a great deal of like really high level, like really you know, the kind of competent coordinating executive work you'd be looking for in, in senior management type stuff. A lot of that work can happen in a way that's that's totally unrecognized and totally doesn't show up in a resume. And I, I'm sort of, like I say, I'm to the extent that an economist can be an optimist, I'm, I'm really I'm really optimistic that that's going to be one of the things that, that sort of gets through this year is, is sort of people recognizing that a lot of that skill gets done outside of the workplace. Well, if I can add to your optimism, we are having our busiest year ever and we're, there's more and more interest in among companies to create formal return to work programs to bring people back. Uh, about a third of the Fortune 50 has have these programs now, but less than 10% of the Fortune 500 do. So we're seeing a lot of growth there and we're seeing brand new growth in the public sector. So for example, the state of Utah just announced the very first state-based returnship program. So. All of this to us points to more and more recognition that these programs not only are needed, but they're really effective in bringing back high caliber employees into the workforce. So lots and lots of activity um, going on at iRelaunch, and I'm, and I'm very excited about it and the prospects. Um, Michael, can we shift to talking about the future? Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this recession is was very different from prior recessions because it was pandemic induced and it was very weirdly sector specific where some sectors were go, like just growing in an, at unprecedented rates and others were completely decimated and i wanted to know how you're looking at the recovery if you see it broadening now it feels to me like it's broadening and just what your thoughts are about that and how it will impact the labor markets yeah, we definitely see, you know, I, I think it's not just that it's broadening, but it's kind of that like you had this like unbelievably unequal recovery for most of last year where uh, like some sectors were doing really well and some sectors weren't recovering at all. And a lot of that is, is really reversing right now in a way that, you know, you'd kind of, uh, I think you might anticipate that's how things would work is like things would get closer to normal, if you will. Um, normal is a very weird concept these days, but you know, you might, you might anticipate that, but I think we were all kind of worried that like, oh, so we did have all these service jobs go away. And, you know, there was, I can't like the number of pieces that I read that frustrated me with people talking about how like, well, this is going to be like, we're going to like this brand new paradigm where everyone's going to go like live in a ski town or a beach town. And then like, there will be no other jobs, you know? I felt like there were there were an unusually large number of those articles coming from from the type of people who would have built a really cool van and gone and seen the world. And you know, I, I gotta say, as I was reading those, I was like, 
oh man, if I could go relocate right now, I would definitely go relocate to like grandparents or some other family members who could share some mm-hmm. care responsibilities. And mm-hmm. that perspective was kind of, was kind of missing. Um, right. But yeah, I think we're, we're, you know, we're seeing like a lot of like, for example, we did lose a ton of childcare jobs. Those are starting to come back, but you know, I think we, we lost like more than a third of childcare workers at some point. I think we're down to about a 10% loss of childcare workers. And we know that sector has been recovering really quickly the last few months, even with all the restrictions that are still, you know, frankly, somewhat necessary because we don't have a vaccine for kids yet. Um, but, it, you know, I think this is one of those deals where we are starting to see the economy return a lot more to normal than than people were predicting. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, where we're seeing like all the companies that were very excited about, you know, not paying rent on offices being like, oh, wait, it's actually really good for people to have offices because, you know, when you're in office, you can actually do your job and and people aren't busting through the door every 30 seconds asking for snacks, hypothetically speaking. Um, We've been through this whole podcast without anybody asking me for goldfish. I'm excited about that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I have jinxed us now. Um, But yeah, I I think it's reassuring to see that because I think, you know, there was like what we kind of got this in the, in the last recession too, where you have sectors that don't recover quickly immediately. And I think a lot of the, the, the presentation goes straight to like, aha, this is like the huge big shift that's going in our, on our economy. And like all these jobs are, are destined for, for the past and, and they're never coming back. And, you know, I mean, historically that is always a bit overblown, but I think like right now we're, we're kind of seeing what I think is, is good news because I think these are, you know, there are lots of these like very important service jobs that I think are not only coming back, but I think, you know, they, people are recognizing the value in a lot of these jobs and, and that that's creating a lot more enthusiasm for making these better jobs than they were. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, so Michael, we are out of time now, unfortunately, but I want to ask you the question we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something we've already talked about today? Yeah, I mean, I I struggle with this because, uh, like, I'm an economist who's married to a mathematician, and so we uh, we are maybe a little more um, bloodless about a lot of uh, really important life decisions than than other people are comfortable with. But I think the sort of you know thinking through, like careers and like all the family care responsibilities that we all knew existed already, but now really know exist, you know, thinking about all these in a very long-term perspective is really important. And, you know, I think getting like, you know, how you think about long-term, how you diversify your income risk across multiple careers, how you make sure you're getting the return on the investment in your education that you've made already and the career you've built up. I think these things are going to be really important. And I think, uh, I think that's also one reason that that the kind of like the tech bro fantasy of like, I'm going to go move to Vail and just do my job there. You know, I, I think that's one of those conversations that it has been really missing that perspective, right? Where, you know, we know that that many, many couples that are sort of in a position to do remote work are two career couples, even if they're not currently two income couples. And, mm, you know, sort of point. figuring out how to navigate the, the opportunities and the challenges presented by what may be a more uh, remote work-friendly environment, like that's going to be um, a really interesting challenge for a lot of households going forward. And 
I'm, I'm sort of my, you know, I guess my advice to the extent that economists give advice, which is usually on two hands where we undercut ourselves. Uh, you know, my advice for that is to think really hard about, you know, if we are going to move to community X because we can, like, is that a long-term move that's going to benefit both of our careers and, and do some income risk hedging and stuff as well? And, and how, are we, are we doing a job of accounting for, for everything that, that doesn't just show up in a paycheck and a rent check in that process? Because mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think, I think a lot of the discussion around that has been, been very focused on sort of like really, uh, simplistic measures of, of what all households deal with, which, which is a lot more than shows up in, in pretty straightforward discussions like that. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, once again, a fascinating conversation and I want to close out by asking uh, for our listeners, how can our listeners find out more about your work? So uh, you should always see what the Center for American Progress, which is AmericanProgress.org, is up to. We do lots of interesting work across a lot of teams. We have a women's initiative that does lots of work on, I believe right now we're about to do a seminar on women's labor market recoveries in the pandemic. Uh, we have an early childhood education team that does a lot of work on, uh, well, early childhood, uh, childcare costs and sort of how to to build a more supportive response there. And then we have an economics team where I am mostly centered. Uh, you can find my Twitter stuff, which is some mix of all of these things and random thoughts at, uh, I believe it's Mike Matowitz, M-A-D-O-W-I-T-Z. Uh, and then we have our calculator, which I think some people would find interesting to play around with, which is uh, interactives.americanprogress.org slash childcare costs. Okay, we'll put, we'll put some of those links in the podcast notes too. Thank you. That, that seems like a much better way to communicate those. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm glad you also talked about them here. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk to you guys. All right. And thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us. 